Welcome back to Sassmouth Dames Podcast. You're listening to episode 31. I'm delighted today to welcome special guest Dr. Jennifer O'Mara, who lectures in film in Trinity College, Dublin. Today we're going to talk about Zigfield Girl from 1941. Jennifer, what does Zigfield Girl tell us about women who pursue fame? I think in terms of how the film is set up so that we have these three very different women who have different kind of relationships to fame um, and different sort of um, ambitions related to it. And we see kind of how damaging it can be for not just uh, the women sort of pursuing this and trying to become one of the big uh, Ziegfeld girls to get their names up in lights, um, but also the kind of impact on their relationships with whether their partners, with their family members, um, and ultimately like sort of can lead to their own personal downfall, um, as in the case with uh, Lana Turner's character in particular. Um, but just seeing how it it's kind of set up as this is going to change their life. So we get that moment really early on when they're all rehearsing backstage um, and the producer and he's you know, saying three things can happen to you. And, you know, he's seen them all. The idea of um, the, the different kind of negative impacts. And he's saying, you know, that uh, Ziegfeld follies, that it just kind of creates uh it's life kind of speeded up. So that idea of everything happens on a kind of more magnified magnified scale. Um, but yeah, just the idea that for some of them, fame is the quest in and of itself. Um, and the idea that it's going to change their lives or make it better. And then, of course, in many cases, the opposite happens. Um, yeah. So it's, it's very much a cautionary tale, mm-hmm. I'd say. One of the things that makes me really sad about Ziegfeld Girl, even though it's beautiful, everything's gorgeous, it's a lovely, entertaining spectacle, is already we've moved so far from the staple women's pictures that I think are so important from the 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, say, um, the rock-solid woman's picture like Stage Door, which is... At the end, Ginger Rogers and Katherine Hepburn can choose their clippings and their career, and they can forego marriage and motherhood altogether. But they are, the women here in Ziegfeld Girl are pretty much railroaded that if you try and choose anything other than being a wife and mother, you're going to have a very unhappy um, sort of fate before you. So it's it's almost it's, it starts really this trend with um, the ice follies of 1939, where Joan Crawford her route to happiness is really giving her husband her studio contract Mm -hmm. and she'll just stay at home and cook the meals, which is unthinkable Mm -hmm. and really tragic to ask someone of her stature to do that. But, you know, already in 1941, we're railroading women into very more narrow roles than they had in the 30s, which I think is sad. I started to try and write the um, sequel to my Sassmouth Dames book, and I just I became so um, stuck because the messages over and over, even in the really good films, women's pictures from the '40s, I picked were resignation, humiliation clipping a woman's wings, showing her how fame will destroy her rather than make her fabulous. I just became so dejected, I, I stopped writing it. Oh, yeah. And this is part of it, you know, this this tradition. And you see it as well, particularly as you're saying with their, the, the relationships and how it plays out with Hedy Lamar's character and 
um, the idea of, you know, it all, her not being, her not seeking this out, her not wanting to be one and they kind of, you know, come to her and ent- encourage her to audition or whatever. But the idea that up until that point, she's been, all we've seen of her is being really supportive of her husband's violin career and then how quickly he turns and becomes jealous and that ultimately she sacrifices her own kind of potential as a performer to kind of go back and, you know, let him take the spotlight again. And that mm-hmm. seems to be on and off screen. Um, such a common kind of uh, presentation of those kinds of events, the kind of particularly when you have the woman become more successful or um, receive more attention and that how that can destroy the relationship, I guess. Um, I think you're dead right that that is something that we see with all of the women in that in that picture, except for Eve Arden. But mm-hmm. she's sort of written off as this, you know, um, hard boiled, cynical spinster who's going to die alone, you know, because uh, she just wants more bracelets on her arm. But every one of them, even if it's not romantic, it's how dare you try and be better than the men in your life. Um, so definitely with Hetty and her um, grouchy uh, violinist mm-hmm. and um, even Judy um, Garland with her father. You know, this the worst thing when she shows him up that she knows how the, sh- the song should play out. She should sing it in her way. Um, I'm always chasing rainbows rather than his vaudevillian style that everyone says is out of dated. And it's it's like she shot a puppy or mm-hmm. stabbed him in the heart with the look on his face that, oh, my God, I, I don't know. I'm not the expert here anymore. I'm not the one with all the answers and, and show business. And then the rest of her narrative is pretty much recovering his paternal like authority or something and that she has to step aside and acknowledge that's the only way she can stay on stage it seems like yeah and it's so interesting as you say there the way it kind of comes full circle like that but also in that early sequence um because I'm really interested in like women's dialogue and voices and things like that it's so jarring how you know that the whole like kind of joke of it being um, the producers talk or the producer, whoever the casting director is talking to her and her father keeps answering on her behalf and she doesn't get to say anything. And mm-hmm. even then, when it make when they make it clear that, no, we only want, you know, we don't want your double act. We just want um, uh, Garland's character. And even then, um, the idea that she's so like, no, I can't do it without him, you know, and then that we go back to that at the end where he is finally cast. He comes he gets like brought up with her success. Um and as you say, that scene in the middle where she, you know, she's trying to perform it in his style um, and that that's not working. And then it was really interesting in that particular scene where it's the, the, the women around her who say, you know, no, it's not her, you know, just slow it down. And then we get the kind of classic Garland style of performance and all the like emotion and soul mm-hmm. um, as opposed to yeah, what her trying to kind of fit in with his mode um, of singing and that. Um, but yeah, that kind of paternal narrative that's also running alongside the kind of romantic Hedy Lamar, all the other romantic ones. Um, yeah. yeah, there are so many. And uh, I, I love that scene that I'm always chasing rainbows. It's such a good song. And, and the way they pare that down and there's no glitz. Um, but there's none of that false vaudevillian showbiz, you know, I'm always, mm-hmm. you know, where she's she's gurning it up the way he asked her to. Um, when we strip it away and it's just this emotional moment, this, then she's so vulnerable. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And but the dad makes them all about him. Now, Charles Winninger, he's a great guy and all of that. But it's like, oh, my daughter's good. The shame of it. How will I ever hold my head up? Yeah. And, you know, when he does his number, so Winninger and Al Sheeran were both in, um, you know, uh, follies or or shows that um, Ziegfeld did. 
it's so hammy. I, I can't imagine that audiences would really like it. It's the worst part of the film, their number. Yeah. It's basically them just saying each other's names. Mm-hmm. I, it seems like very 1890s to me and not something that folks would be. But there is this kind of weird um, timeline going on in the picture as well. The bit about um, Jimmy Stewart being a bootlegger. Mm-hmm. So we're supposed to be in Prohibition, but everybody, the setting and the hair and the, and the clothes are all f- 1941. So it's it's kind of weird. It, it is quite confusing in that respect. And I think that parts of the scenes were also like recycled from some earlier film that like, they've been cut. So they were just kind of, I'm not sure which bits exactly, but maybe that explains some of... Um, the strangeness but even then in terms of her um, Garland song about him always chasing rainbows and that this was like two years after The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. but it seems I mean it just seemed to me like to be from a, a, a very different era even though they're made quite closely in conjunction but whether that was a kind of reference to her fame in uh, The Wizard of Oz as well is it a kind of um, assuming people are going to know her from that role maybe more than anything else mm-hmm I think it's probably a bit of both, mm-hmm. but Judy had a really big year that year for MGM. So Babes on uh, Parade, isn't that it, with um, Mickey Rooney, awful, awful Mickey Rooney, came in at like number three. And um, and then she had this one, Zigfield Girl, came in at number five for the year. So she was really at the height of her, f- her fame here. Mm-hmm. And it's so weird when we look at her. And I know that you said on Twitter that you loved Lana Turner. Yeah. And it is. It's Lana's, it's Lana's picture. Yeah. And it's hard to believe she didn't get nominated for it. I think she is really that good. And she is the one who has sort of the most screen time and story yeah. development. But there's only a year difference between them. And it, it really, it's the gulf seems huge. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a, a criticism of Judy Garland, but she's very childlike here. It's not just her character, but that wide-eyed, sort of earnest, innocent quality. Um, yeah, and in that scene with the father where they're doing that performance, when that's kind of awful. And like my reference point there was like, it's so like Shirley Temple-esque, you know, in mm-hmm. that, like what you're saying, the childishness of it. Um, and yeah, that is really surprising because to think that there's only a year between them because um, she is positioned as as not only a kind of her father's daughter, but very much still a girlish as opposed to the other two. Um, and particularly, I guess, with uh, Hedy Lamarr and that she was always so serious, her, her expression so somber mm-hmm. um, and that even though she seemed to have wanted to do this film to bring her away from her more serious roles. And yet she's very much bringing that kind of... Um, mature femininity to it and the kind of um, her expressiveness compared to, say, um, Garland's. And then you can maybe see how Lana Turner is somewhere in between, but very much more in line with um, Hedy Lamar than Garland, that she's sort of out there on her own. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting, I don't know, production um, details around it in terms of the treatment of the different women um, on set. I don't know if you're aware of this, but apparently this was something that came up in at least one of their biographies that Garland felt kind of, um, not intimidated, but she felt like kind of it was her, the way she was treated on set was kind of mirroring the way the characters were treated in the film in terms of the responses, whether or not these are good by by the kind of cat, by the crew and the cast. Um, And there was something about... um, when Lana Turner used to walk in and they would like whistle at her and then when Hedy Lamar would walk by they would like sigh the men and the crew or whatever and then she didn't get any of these responses um and so that idea that she was kind of being 
punished and like not punished, but you know, was being set up as you're not the conventional star, even when she was probably the biggest That's of all tough of them. competition. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, Lana Turner and Hedy Lamar, how are you really going to compete yeah. with that? I mean, she's so small as mm-hmm. well. Um, yeah. So um, the the most one of the most interesting production notes that I read was that every day in um, Eve Arden said that Judy would read aloud her love poems for that she wrote for David Rose. And I was thinking she doesn't say it. But the first thing that comes to my mind is if I had to listen to anybody's love poems at 6am, I would want to strangle them. <laughs> um, that, but that shows how in a way she was indulged because she was the star, you know, yeah. because she did have that box office clout. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, um, uh, Lana Tur- Turner had her own box office clout. So her first picture, Honky Tonk, came out that year, was number three at the box office, I think. Um, no, I already said that Judy Garland was. It was three or four, mm-hmm. um, her first picture with Clark Gable. And then she had, um, she's in Jekyll and Hyde, which was number 12 for the year, and Zigfield Girl. So she was really at the height of her fame. But again, her 20-year-old is, is you know, a woman is sexual and Judy's is milkshakes and hand-holding and I got to I gotta spend more time with pop kind of thing, which, you know, maybe she didn't so much want, you know, that she would have liked a more uh, womanly type of role. Um, but if you think about how many women were groomed f- to play adult women roles um, mm-hmm. in their teens, Judy is a rarity that she got to escape that because she's 19 in this picture. Um, Linda Darnell was playing Ty Power's wife when she was 16, his wife of two years mm-hmm. in Daytime Wife. Um, Lana Turner, uh, Loretta Young, and Hedy Lamar doing Ecstasy when she was 18, you know, um, the simulated orgasm lady. So um, it's kind of odd that she got to escape that, I guess, because with the voice, she didn't need anything else. Yeah, exactly. And I think about that, if we're thinking about going back to like, what does this film tell us about fame and though, how in, in the beginning or how it's initially set up as a kind of, um, it doesn't matter, it's not a, it's not about kind of perform performative talent because, you know, you're one of many, the girls, the idea that it's the multitude of them. Um, and even when before the main, the first performance and Hattie Lamar is like putting on her lipstick and someone's saying, oh, you know, don't bother with that. No one's going to be looking. And so, you know, it's kind of the, the, the body, the spectacle of it all that people will notice, not the small details. And that there immediately her and um, Lana Turner's character are already the kind of stars in that production. But then by the end, obviously, they're both kind of gone and we have the, the Garland character has emerged as the real star that her talent has kind of paid off in that sense. Um, her kind of, as a performer in a way that it, it sort of suggests I suppose that um, the like career longevity of the, the young star is, is tied to maybe um, different qualities to the ones that immediately get you noticed and get you kind of given a starring role without you know even trying and as in the case of Hedy Lamar's character who doesn't even you know want to be there really um, so I guess it has that slightly maybe good message in terms of, oh, it pays off to have skills. It's not about how you look, you know, or how mature your sexuality is um, Mm -hmm. in that way. That's interesting. I haven't thought about Mm. that. I'm, I guess, maybe more so because it seems so... I don't know. I guess she is at the top of the wedding cake mm. at the end. So she's clearly, you know, the star star that does have the longevity. But it just seems a little too, I don't know, if I were Judy Garland and I were next to all these statuesque women in gorgeous headdresses and I was in that fringe yeah. thing that she wears, it's really sort of... Um, and it's so funny. Sorry. Yeah. Because no, she's, 
she says that about before they go on about not wanting to look like a Christmas tree or something and then it's like you know she literally has the costume that looks like tinsel yeah. um, so it's like um, as opposed to the other as you say the kind of the celestial numbers um, the ones that clearly everyone want, wanted to wear um, or be in um, and Lana's fabulous um, bird uh, headdress when she falls off the set and someone says you better take the pledge sister mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that for me watching it, the costumes were just um, what sustained my attention the most in a way. Um, I mean, you have some really nice other moments, but it kind of keeps coming back to to the kind of grandeur of them um, and sort of reading up about it and thinking about how this was um, the costume designer Adrian's basically his last year working with MGM and then he he set up his own boutique in Beverly Hills after that and he um he only did one more film for them after this one um but I think just it's such a good showcase for his designs and especially in those big show-stopping numbers but even um even some of the smaller moments um I was really taken with um somewhere in I think it's the scene where um Garland's character is doing her, you know, bad vaudeville performance that they then slow down and she's wearing this black and white dress that's like perfectly split down the center, one side black, one side white. Um, really interesting. And then it's kind of reversed on her belt. And then as we go on, we kind of see those lines in on the two other um on on the other characters, Hedy Lamar and Judy Garland both wear something similar but like diagonal. And then it's all kind of leading up, I think, to the costumes in the um the final big number, I'm trying to remember, the Trinidad, what's the title? Oh, Minnie from Trinidad Minnie from with Trinidad. her parrot on the shoulder. Yeah, the parrot and then <laughs> and how, how they're all wearing these diagonal line, black and white. Um, I just thought it was kind of a really nice foreshadowing in the costumes potentially. Um, and again, that idea that some of the kind of commentary around the film of people saying, oh, if only it had been in Technicolor, it would have looked better. But I actually think it wouldn't have been half as visually effective if, if it was because um, especially with the kind of allusions to like uh, like the angelicness of it and the celestial costumes and if that had all been in colour I just don't think it would have um, worked the same. I would always choose black and white over colour mm-hmm. always and especially for this. The smaller moments too I like the one where uh, that you mentioned with Judy and Hetty but also in the when they're waiting to see to get into the audition and we just get this parade of everyday fashion and mm-hmm. Judy's wearing this little cropped bolero jacket and um, you know a very tight um, uh, pleat skirt so not big pleats Mm-hmm. smaller pleats and it makes her look young and fresh and it suits her character so well and that's so Adrian um, all of it the hats the gloves uh, the veils all of it it's just this parade of can I stay in this room for a while and just listen to women dress like this it's pretty ide- much my ideal woman's picture really yeah no the costumes and then moving from the in, the 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 kind of celestial theme in the first big number. And then I was kind of like, when are we going to get another big, you know, choreographed Busby Berkeley one? And then when it comes in and all the animal imagery um, or all the animal costumes, um, and w- the one of the ones that stuck out to me again was uh, what looked like a kind of precursor to the famous uh, Bjork swan dress, where mm. one of the women is wearing literally a, a kind of, I think it's a swan wrapped around her in a really similar style. Um, so again, you can kind of, Looking at that now, I'm really 
um, curious if to that was some kind of influence um, on whoever designed um, that dress in the 90s or whatever, whenever it was. That's a great catch. Yeah, it <laughs> probably was. He was so influential um, and still is. But when you when you watch a parade of Adrian's, um, then you think like if you look at, say, gold diggers or something where women are basically wearing like a little top and a skirt and you're like, wow, you know, this extravaganza. It really is, you know, the glorification of the American girl that Siegfeld did, Adrian did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I read one uh, interview with Judy Garland where she's like, Adrian has come into my life now, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, he's dressing me now. I'm going somewhere, you know, I'm I'm definitely, um, you know, uh, earmarked for fame or something. Yeah, it kind of was a life changing experience working with him or being given his costumes to wear. That's why it's kind of sad that he you know, decided for whatever reason and to, I don't know what was beckoning him to, you know, leave um, working with MGM or a studio to set up his own um, sort of boutique. And if it was, you know, it feels like now people would do both. I mean, you know, you'd have that on the side and it would have been nice to see more of his um, designs. I know there's a huge body of his work, but like having rewatched this, I'm just like, but more like that would be perfect. <laughs> I don't think he would have done well with wartime shortages, mm. and I don't think he got on very well with Louis B. Mayer. Okay, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I I look sometimes um, to see what his um, you know his own label um, sells for you know um, his vintage, and it's not something that I can afford, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and that mini of Trinidad number, um, I read in an interview with Judy Garland. She goes on like Judy liked to complain in the press a lot, and I mm-hmm. get it because she was really overworked and yeah. and she was a kid. And um, you know, I I understand that that means of of rebellion. But she goes on about um, in a complaint for that mini from Trinidad number, and what she's complaining about is basically just what you do when you're doing a musical number. I had to walk down the stairs and I couldn't look at my feet and I had to go five <laughs> steps this way and, and 10 steps this way. And she's going on and on. She said, you could turn galloping mad after eight hours of that. And, you know, it's like, that's your job, though. Yeah. And that's what you're supposed to do. And, you know, Busby Berkeley being a, a taskmaster master and yelling at people is one thing. But it seems like, oh, come on, Judy, just suck it up a little bit. Yeah, I wonder if it's the nature of the choreography. Well, like in in I'm thinking in particular that sequence where she has all these men around her and I don't I normally associate her with having kind of space, you know, like maybe that's what she's referring to in terms of she's used to being able to kind of go where she wants a bit and not be kind of maybe so contained. I oh, mean, okay, so the showgirl choreography is what she's objecting to. Maybe and in terms of I mean, I guess that doesn't explain not being able to look at her feet, but that idea of maybe she, you know, this idea it wasn't just about her doing her thing, it was about you know, all of the moving parts of the other performers because mm-hmm. it does get quite claustrophobic in terms of like the the, um, the way they're arranged in the scene. And it looks really well because of all the, um, the, they're all wearing these diagonal, you know, costumes that I keep referring to. Mm-hmm. But you have, I guess, from her perspective, maybe that was kind of difficult. Um, it was a crowded stage mm-hmm. for sure. Um, so uh, let's talk about Lana's scenes, yes. um, because I, I do think that this is the reason that you watch it really is for yeah. Lana Turner and her fabulous hair that mm-hmm. is the bounciest uh, hair that ever uh, was on film. So um, the first big scene um, for me is, oh, in her elevator, you know, uniform, she's so cute. But it's really when she's um, 
you know, when she's in her um, her flat, her uh, Park Avenue flat, and she wakes up in the satin boudoir, and you know, Bon Nuit is on is embroidered on the duvet, and her maid wakes her up spraying perfume because yeah. that's how all you know mm-hmm. Broadway divas should awaken in the morning. Um, that it's it's this um, complete fantasy of um, what every girl wants in her own kind of you know dream flat, and then Jimmy Stewart walks in and ruins it. As he does, that's what he's supposed to do in this yeah. picture. Now, I like Jimmy Stewart, but he's a stinker in this picture. Oh, he's awful. It's like he's like no redeeming characteristics at all. But yeah, those sheets, I, I literally Googled them afterwards. <laughs> I was like, there has to be images of these. Is there like, are, are these still for sale? Um, but yeah, that idea of, of being woken in that way, it's um, interesting. It's like, it seems like a variation on that. Um, who was it? Was it Marilyn Monroe who said that she just wore perfume to bed? Or oh, right, the Chanel. Yeah. yeah. So this idea of being woken up by someone spraying perfume—it's um, like related, but I guess the height of luxury. Um, but yeah, she has so many um, interesting moments, and the idea that this kind of led to her getting more serious roles, and that they seem to be that they, you know, according to the reports, they were extent, they were literally writing her more. Um, material as it went on because they could see that this was really um, working for her um, but yeah that early scene in the um, in the elevator and the, even the dynamic of it and yeah her, her costume but the idea that she's um, that Jimmy Stewart's character um, is trying to kind of gaslight her even about seeing Ziegfeld the idea of like why would he be in an elevator mm-hmm. and of course that becomes more I guess the idea that, of course, Ziegfeld doesn't appear at any point throughout the film. So he's another one of these kind of um, men in the background kind of overshadowing or, you know, trying to overshadow them all or his, he's dictating things. But um, pulling the strings, pulling the strings. Exactly. Yeah. So the idea that she somehow made this um, big impression on him, which you can believe, obviously, in the elevator and that she has such um She's great comebacks at different points. You can imagine, you know, she's saying, oh, I was fresh with him and and she can't believe it now that she's offended um, the person she wanted to impress. But yeah, she has such an evolution, I guess, over the course of the film, even if it gets quite, you know, melodramatic at times and she's sort of forced into the, um, down the alcohol route. Um, but in a way that, of course, is also kind of accurate. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the number and... Of course, it would that kind of dependence on um, drugs of one form or another. That again, watching it, it's hard not to think of Judy Garland's like a star is born and then her own like her demise. But watching it here and seeing it kind of playing out in advance um, with um, Lana Turner's character. But yeah, what did you have any other scenes um, that you well, liked? Well, I in love particular? the scene when she's she's showing Gil what it means to her because he doesn't mm. get it. And this is a, a sort of a staple scene in women's pictures is the makeover, the clothes. Mm. So she says, you know, were you ever the kid who they ran out of cake and ice cream at a birthday party, you know, before they got to mm. you? That was my whole life. And, you know, now I, I can walk on mink and she mm-hmm. puts a mink on the on the floor and I never have to have these shoes were sold. I have a, a whole closet full of them. And if this one of these pretty frocks, she says dresses. Oh, I mean, sorry, frocks mm-hmm. get sturdy. I can throw it out. 
Yeah. And that's it. That's the measure of success. And later when she's pulling at her hair and she says, I'm counting my blessings, mm-hmm. you know, she's getting, but she has six fur coats, damn it. Yeah. She, her life may be falling apart, but she has a measurable, definitive account of what is success for her. And to me, that's like that, that not being impoverished, that, you know, that's, that's the appeal. That's why she's there. That's like, what else is it for if it's not for beautiful clothes? It's something um, honest and, you know, accurate and, you know, speaks to, I think, many people in the audience then mm-hmm. and now. So then, then the other side of that is, you know, her downfall and that really chilling, disturbing scene in, in the speakeasy mm-hmm. um, with curtains that are designed for, you know, basically trading sex or something. Um, and the cauliflower ear guy, uh, the, the prize fighter. So she snubs him at a party because he assumes he can have her because he's a prize fighter and, you know, I can have whatever I want. And then later, you know, he calls her a refrigerated, mm-hmm. oh, one of those refrigerated dames, which is a great line. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then she meets him again when she's down on her lock and she's asking for, uh, you know, the Joe, the bartender for brandy and give it a twin, she says, mm-hmm. which is, you know, echoes of um, uh, Anna Christie and Garbo. Give me a whiskey and don't be stingy, baby. Um and then this guy's like sidles up to her and he only has the price of a beer, you know, so she has to settle for beer and, you know, this guy with the ugly cauliflower ear. Yeah. And then she has kind of um, her, going back to what you're saying about, you know, her rise to sort of success and being kind of measured in terms of, you know, ownership and costumes and that. Um, and even, you know, th- that she wants to drink wine and she wants to have perfume, all the kind of markers of kind of, I guess, um, moving up in terms of like the social ladder gone from being the, the bell girl in the elevator. Um, Okay. So um so he's he basically she what keeps him from raping her is she mm-hmm. passes out. She's so overcome. And then suddenly he's a gentleman and he's like, Oh, help me as if he wouldn't have just carried through, but this is nineteen forty one and I guess we don't we're not really about reality so much mm-hmm. in MGM at this point. Um, so then, you know, we know as soon as she walks in the door, she's down on her luck because she has this crumpled rain hat um, that looks like something that um, Eve Harrington would wear, you know, yeah. and this old grubby, um, uh, you know, trench coat, which seems unlikely that it would be in that lovely closet with all of her things. But now she's pawned her good. She has nothing left. And so now um, the movie tells her and us that you should be damn lucky if some man wants to marry you, even if he's been emotionally abusive throughout. Mm-hmm. And if all you can look forward to is raising ducks um, that you should, you know, thank your lucky stars that somebody wants you after all of this. Meanwhile, she's still gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lana Turner dissipated is what most women would kill for. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so um, it's not really realistic in that sense. But, um, you know, um, then we get this grand fall. So she's like a ballerina on the stairs. You know, it's an opera. It's it's a show in and of itself. Um, and it also makes now for a great gif um, for just everything, any any kind of melodramatic moment. Exhaustion, it fatigue. For. Yeah. No, definitely. And the idea that they left that kind of ambiguous at the end, that there was um, apparently there was um, a version in which she died and then that didn't test well. So they decided they would leave it kind of open. 
Um, and we we don't really know what becomes of her. So again, it's that kind of, will she have a, will she, re- not a resurrection, will she, you know, come back? Will she pull herself together or, you know, recover from all this? And there's still plenty of time, of, you know, is in within her life, within her time scale of, of a, up for career. But I suppose the way the film presents it is there can only be one that from the right from the very start, the idea you have these three who are, whether they like it or not, from our perspective, kind of pitted against each other is they they can all be like Siegfried girls, but only one of them can be the star. Um, so that idea that maybe she must be sacrificed in order for Garland's character to kind of rise up, that you can't like, you know, you can't have too many of them doing well, um, that there's that kind of survival of the fittest um, aspect of it. She does, um, you know, I, I'm cut, I'm sort of gutted for her when she goes in there and sits in the audience and you think, gosh, Lana should be on stage. Mm-hmm. Why isn't she? And she gets to see them do well. And then, you know, she has her big moment. And she doesn't even have an audience. You know, she's all by herself when she falls in that magnificent swoon, which she says, um, you know, Lana and her memoir says, well, everyone says it took 26 bone crushing takes. But she said, I did a letter perfect the first time oh. after we had rehearsed it mm-hmm. um, with the director. So um, that's probably not true either. But mm-hmm. still somewhere um, in between it. She with enough rehearsal, I think she could have done it. Um for sure. Um, it's interesting how many women have written memoirs who are in the, that picture. Normally, I'm searching for something, you know, it's somebody said about it. But Eve Arden doesn't say very much. Hedy Lamar doesn't say much other than she loved it. And mm-hmm. she was, you know, so happy to be in it. She wanted something light and, and something fun, like a Frank Molnar play um, that she knew in Austria. Um, but Lana goes on for a while that, you know, MGM's drama coach said I should have been nominated for mm-hmm. an Academy Award. And I think she's right at that, though. Um, I think she is really good. Now, she couldn't have beaten Joan Fontaine, I'm sure, in suspicion, but she is really good. Um, and it would be interesting to see as well, you know, if she was going to be nominated, where even where she would have been, not, you know, would it be as a lead actress or would it have been as supporting? Because, of course, she is one of the kind of alongside Garland but again that idea that in order to kind of even be nominated often for these awards they have to be really signaled out that you are the star you know right. that you know, you're not like, one of three stars and that the cast in this film is just there's so many people in it you mm-hmm. you know and um, I wonder if that like lessened her chances of kind of you know being singled out um, especially I guess over Garland um, given that she was probably the most famous of them the biggest star yeah. right it seems like the the um the billing is really skewed for this first of all jimmy stewart should not be the top mm. star on this picture it's a woman's picture yeah. he doesn't belong first but coming off of i guess mr smith he was you know he could state his own terms um and judy really she's a minor character in this mm-hmm. she doesn't have much of a an arc a narrative arc and Hedy Lamar, what does she do other than look beautiful? Yeah. I and mean, I love when she, they're in the nightclub mm-hmm. and they're and they say, um, you know, hello Brooklyn, hello beautiful. And Hedy Lamar's in this basically a jacquard tent. It, mm-hmm. She has this voluminous um, night, um, you know, night um, or evening gown on, and you know, because all she needs is her face. Really, it doesn't matter. She mm-hmm. doesn't need to show any skin or flaunt anything. Um, but um, yeah, so. Um, 
she doesn't do very much though and she's just we're waiting for her to reconcile with her husband although i guess she has the nice scene with the woman who's like oh you know would you mind not marrying my husband please yeah i was i was a follies girl too you know in other words there's this this cycle and there's always going to be another one and she does get that like you know because i feel like in terms of the good lines they're kind of maintained for um Turner's character and for Eve Arden's character, mm-hmm. but she does get that one about like a smart girl never puts anything in writing or whatever it is she says. So that idea that, you know, is this what drew her to the part? Because it's funny that she says, you know, this is something light and something easy when when you think about how this was kind of a really serious role for Lana Turner. So even within the same um, film, for one, it's like the lightest film in her career, I guess. And for, for then for Turner, this is like one of the most hard hitting. Um, right. No, that's a good point. Um, I I love Lana in this, and I think she's really underrated as an actor. Um, I think she showed she can do a lot more than she was asked to um, in this picture. Um, But, you know, she's 20 years old. She's lovely. She has her whole future in front of her. Um, I love also Mae Bush is in this. She's the lady who plays the sort of wardrobe woman when they get the big speech from the producer Mm -hmm. or the stage director in the beginning. And she's the one who's saying, you know, uh, Eve Arden is an octopus and all this sort of thing. But she's, you know, she was a silent film star. And now, you know, here she is, the tight curls. And and she's kind of faded. Only that she just gives the the snappy one-liners. But it's interesting to see people from the silence who carry through. Um, anything else about um, Lana or, or um, Eve? I mean, I suppose one of the other things that was struck me watching it in terms of you know how does this relate to all those other films about stardom and fame and like kind of the backstage musical and how quickly it comes down to like how as you were saying there has to be like the makeover there has to be the change and the idea that yeah right from the start that um Turner's character is you know told she has to go um on a diet or whatever and then the idea that her mother thinks it's to put on weight and sort of start <laughs> saying that about what you mean you know she's like oh no Ziegfeld says I have to and you know of course we never hear any of this but it's all implied and um so that kind of focus and again if we're thinking about all the other kind of the stars boring kind of films that that, that we're will continue to be making how there's always that sort of focus on it doesn't matter even if you've been kind of the kind of um the expectation that there's always more work to be done on the female body and even um, when at the very very beginning when you have this woman who we never see again show up for the audition and she's told to take off her hat and you know um, to smile willingly um, and she's then wants to she's told to come back the next day and she's saying oh do you not want to see my legs like you know you've only looked at my hair or my face or whatever and you know they're saying oh that's not our department so you know even within this kind of uh, objectifying casting world there's a kind of there's certain people who are allowed to dictate who's you know different body parts um, and of course you know we never kind of get back to that but that's always in the background the idea that this is why Garland initially is not taken you know she's not doesn't have star power she has to kind of fight her way in um, so I think that's obviously something you see in all of these films it always comes back to that like a crass appraisal of women's beauty or yeah. form. Like the one guy says to uh, Lana, what could you learn f- out of a book? Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, you're you're good looking. So that's all you need 
forget about anything else. Um, don't don't tax yourself by trying to read. Yeah, and even that scene again, which one I feel like is now so cliched. You know, you see it in, in so many things since with them all kind of walking down the stairs with the books on their head, trying mm-hmm. to like improve their posture or to demonstrate their poise. Um, and I don't know, maybe you've seen that in other films, but for me, that was like, that's such a recurring image now, that idea of that being like used to to signal this is like um, the kind of the policing of women's bodies in a very like, you know, you should be able to do this. You should have this much uh, kind of poise. But also, yeah, as you're saying about like, it's how books are being used here. It's, you know, put them on your head and mm-hmm. use them to make your body better rather than reading from them right they're gym equipment yeah basically yeah uh, they're not for edifying yourself mm-hmm. um and the stairs are really one of those um staples sort of um you know uh s- spatial features in in women's pictures um in what price hollywood one of the the earliest incarnation of a star is born my favorite scene is when constance bennett blows her audition and then she goes home and she learns it by going up and down the stairs all night long to get that line right and when she finally gets it the look of revelation on her face like oh i'm in that moment i realize it and, you know, Betty Davis made her career on the stairs. Um, mm-hmm. it, we get stairs over and over and over again. So maybe now that I think about it, I can have a little more empathy with Judy complaining about having to go down those stairs without looking. Mm-hmm. It's like this, you know, that what you have, there's so much effort in, in that's put into an emphasis on something that's so banal or we shouldn't have to think so much about, but we do. And that you, you'll just do it over and over and over. And I think, yeah, as you say, the stairs are such a central, I guess, of, um, of those big MGM sets and all the kind of musical numbers. And with the Busby Berkeley ones, how, um, in addition to, I guess, thinking about the practicalities of it, you know, they're, 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 that they're so curved, you know, so she's, you know, you're not just worrying about like going down, but like not misstepping, following the line of the curve. Mm-hmm. And then that's something that's in the very end sequence at the end of the last big number where, you know, we're sort of watching the stage rotate. Um like the practicalities of all that, um, yeah, it does seem like a, a lot now that I think about in a bit more detail, getting more sympathy for her as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, this was lovely. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, I hope you'll uh, come back next time, listeners, for episode 32 when I talk about Down Argentine Way from 1941 with Carmen Miranda and Betty Grable. Thanks very much. <laughs>